Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. We, we are continuing today uh, a message series started last week called Christmas Soundtracks. Pastor Dustin kicked us off with a great message last week, and we're looking at some popular Christmas songs and finding a redemptive message that comes from those songs. So let me ask you before we jump into that today, how do you pass time on an hour-long commuter train ride from Stanford, Connecticut to New York City every day? Well, if you work in radio and theater, you write songs. At least that's what Jay Johnson did. When he wasn't catching up on the day's news by reading the paper or solving word puzzles, he was playing around with lyrics. The song White Christmas, written by Irving Berlin, had just become a hit with Bing Crosby singing it. So Johnson had an idea to go opposite, to tap into the other side of Christmas, one that we don't like to acknowledge, but everyone knows it's there. So instead of a white Christmas, he started to imagine what a blue Christmas might be like. And he wrote from the perspective of a jilted lover. And few things can make you feel as blue as being rejected by someone you love, especially during the holidays. So he wrote, as you just heard, saying, I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'll be so blue thinking about you. Decorations of red on a green Christmas tree won't mean a thing, dear, if you're not here with me. Blue Christmas was not an immediate hit. It was first recorded by an unknown singer named Doyle O'Dell in 1948. But a song about a lover leaving has country music written all over it. (laughs) Someone has pointed out that with the arrival of self-driving vehicles, it's just a matter of time before someone writes a country song about a truck leaving its owner. (laughs) And so country star Ernest Tubb and his Texas troubadours released Blue Christmas in 1950. Became a hit song on the country and western charts. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'll be so blue. Ah, but then a young singer named Elvis Presley (laughs) reluctantly recorded it for his first Christmas album in 1957. It was a song that Elvis originally did not like. In fact, Elvis reportedly said to his backup singers before recording it, let's just get this over with. Years later, however, Elvis would say it was his favorite Christmas song. And it is hard for me to hear it without hearing Elvis's signature style. The wistful song addresses the melancholy mood that many people have when they come to this time of year. You know, contrary to the countless feel-good festive songs, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of year for many people. Someone once described what he called the intensifying dynamic of Christmas. 
Christmas. What he meant by that was Christmas is kind of a time where our highs feel higher and our lows seem lower. Some of you might be on a Christmas high this holiday season. Maybe you're celebrating your first Christmas with your kids or your grandkids since COVID. Uh, Some of you have a loved one that's going to be home from overseas or a loved one who's going to be visiting from a long way away, and you're anticipating a great time of being together. Some of you maybe got a new job this year, or you made some new friends this year, and you feel like you're in better circumstances, and Christmas feels like a chance to celebrate the high you're on. But Christmas also has this strange power of making our lows feel lower, doesn't it? It can bring up what's broken or what's missing or any number of things that make us feel blue. Maybe this year you lost your job and now you're not sure what the future holds. Maybe this year you've experienced the end of a relationship or the death of a loved one or a sudden change in your health or something else that just wasn't expected. Maybe this year feels a lot like last year and the year before and the year before that, and you're not sure how the new year is going to be any different, and so you feel stuck in a cycle of cynicism, and you don't know how to get out of it. In an article titled The Christmas Blues, Why They happen and how to manage, the writer lists three reasons why people feel so blue at Christmas. Number one is too much comparison shopping, and the writer's not talking about the literal purchasing of gifts here. We compare our lives to the unrealistic representation of the shiny, perfect Christmas experiences that we're bombarded with by the media. We also have a tendency to compare our holidays to those of others, like our work colleagues and our friends. They have more money than us. They have more success. They got a more exciting holiday trip planned. They got a more loving family. And if that's not enough, this present Christmas is compared to past ones, the one before the divorce, or when mom was still around and we weren't grieving, or when we were younger and the kids were at home. Second reason, stress is higher. There are simply more things on the to-do list this time of year, more get-togethers, more gifts to buy, more meals to plan. And add to this that we tend to drink more alcohol. A shocking 41% more alcohol is consumed in December, according to researchers. And we eat less healthy. Both of which can lead to sluggishness and disrupted sleeping patterns. So we aren't well equipped to deal with the stress. Here's a third reason. End of year anxiety leads to negative thinking. With New Year's pending, you might be playing a very self-critical soundtrack for what you did or didn't do with this year, or having negative thoughts about your finances going into the new year. And many of us start to focus on what is missing from our life in the face of the shallow, sentimental cheer that is seemingly all around us. All of these soundtracks and many more can lead to a very blue Christmas. In fact, did you know there are some churches that have a blue Christmas service? Usually on December 21st, the longest night of the year. The music is somber. The sanctuary is dark, often lit mostly with candles. And there are readings out of the Psalms and Lamentations and other parts of Scripture. It is not a holly jolly atmosphere. They don't sing, go tell on the mountain or joy to the world. Instead, they tend to sing more solemn and slower hymns. Some people find such services 
comforting. Others, not so much. One man said after attending a blue Christmas service, I found the whole thing to be quite depressing because I was looking for a word of hope but found none. No matter how blue you may be, everyone wants to feel at least a little thrill of hope in the midst of our weary and dreary worlds at Christmas. So how can we bridge that gap between Christmas expectations and Christmas reality? How can we hold on to the lofty images of the ideal while living in the low experiences of the real? Well, there are two texts from Luke's gospel about Jesus' birth that I want us to look at today that I think can help, but probably not in the way that you're expecting. They're both found in Luke chapter 2. One is very familiar. It's a treasured part of the Christmas story. The other is not familiar at all. And quite frankly, it seems out of place in the Christmas story. But both passages speak to a blue reality that Jesus came to beautifully redeem. Here's the first one, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Here's a second, same chapter, just a few verses later. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. These two verses sound like they could not be more unrelated and polar opposite. One is a cherished, beloved part of the Christmas narrative that Christians love to recite and highlight and is the focus of Christmas pageants. The other seems like such a downer, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, who let that cranky old guy into the Christmas pageant? But they really do speak to the same broken reality that Jesus came to redeem. If you read the whole chapter of Luke chapter 2, you'll see that Luke is talking about a theme that is very seldom brought out at Christmas, yet it is central to the whole story. It is a vital element of the doctrine of Christmas. And here it is. Jesus Christ came to be rejected so that we could be accepted. Now, just sit with that for just a moment. Jesus Christ came to be rejected so that we could be accepted. Everything about this chapter, Luke 2, is simply foreshadowing coming events that will define the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke is not just reporting historical facts here, although he did that as well as any writer in the ancient world, according to both Christian and non-Christian scholars. But he's doing far more than reporting historical facts. He's documenting doctrinal truths that will form the foundation of faith for followers of Jesus from this time on. And so he tells us in that very familiar text, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The very first thing Luke highlights from the moment Jesus arrived on the planet is that he shut out. No room. Doors closed. Laid in a manger, out in the cold. I don't know what Mary and Joseph were expecting when they got to Bethlehem, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't this. I love this old story about a grade school class that was putting on a Christmas play, which 
included the story of Mary and Joseph coming to the inn. And in that class was one little boy who wanted so very much to be Joseph. But when the parts were handed out, his biggest rival was given that part. And he was assigned to be the innkeeper instead. He was bitter about this. And all during rehearsals, he began to plot how he could get even with his rival. Finally, the night of the performance, Mary and Joseph come walking across the stage. They knocked on the door of the inn. Innkeeper opened the door and asked him gruffly what they wanted. Joseph said, we'd like to have a room for the, the night, please. Suddenly, the little innkeeper saw a chance to steal the spotlight, and he threw the door wide open. He said, great, come on in. I'll give you the best room in the house. <laughs> now, that wasn't in the script. And for a few seconds, little Joseph didn't know what to do. But finally, young Joseph had an idea. He stepped up to the innkeeper. He looked beyond him through the door that represented the inn. He looked left. He looked right. Then he stepped back out and he said, no wife of mine's going to stay in a dump like this. Come on, Mary, we're going to the barn. <laughs> Sometimes Christmas just goes off script from what we think it should be. But Luke points out that Jesus' first point of entry into our blue and broken world was in the face of the pain of rejection. No room. And then a little later, in this same chapter, we're told about an old man named Simeon that Joseph and Mary encounter when they bring the baby Jesus to be circumcised and dedicated at the temple in Jerusalem eight days after his birth. Luke describes him as righteous and devout. And he tells us this, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. I think of that line from the old Caddyshack movie where Carl, the wacky groundskeeper played by Bill Murray, tells a young caddy that one day he caddied for the Dalai Lama, but instead of tipping him at the end of the round, the Dalai Lama promised Carl that when he dies, he will receive total consciousness. And Carl says, so I got that going for me, which is nice. <laughs> the Holy Spirit had promised Simeon, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. So he had that going for him, which is nice. And Simeon waited and waited and he waited and he waited some more. And then one day in walked Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And the Holy Spirit whispered, today is the day. And so here's what Luke writes. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The first part of what Simeon says here is well known and has become famous in Catholic and Protestant liturgies all around the world and for many centuries. It's often used as a benediction. In Latin, it's called the nunc dimittis. The first part of what uh, Simeon says here, based on those words, Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant, for my eyes have seen your salvation. By the way, what a great prayer for dying. Dismiss your servant in peace, Lord. That's just a great prayer, isn't it? Dismiss your servant in peace, Lord. One guy said, when I die, I want to die like my grandfather who died peacefully in his sleep and not screaming like all the passengers in his car. <laughs> not a good one. 
Hey, you know about, nobody said teaching the Bible has to be born. <laughs> Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Those are great, feel-good words. We all like that part of what Simeon says. But that's not all Simeon said. Simeon then looks directly at Mary. And he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Talk about a blue Christmas. When was the last time you heard those words read at a Christmas service? Have you ever seen that verse in a Christmas card? As far as I know, nobody's ever put those words to music. Why? Both the secular and church celebrations of Christmas almost exclusively focus on the happier themes of Christmas. Good news, great joy, Prince of Peace. But like Simeon's words to Mary and Joseph, that's not all that's said about the coming of Jesus. And think about it. How does a surgeon bring peace to your sick body that has a malignant tumor growing in it? The surgeon spills your blood and he cuts you open because that's your only path to health. Several years ago, through a series of many tense events, we found out that Melinda had an abnormal growth in her pancreas. We went to see a pancreatic specialist at the Cleveland Clinic which is close to where we lived at that time in Northeast Ohio, he immediately referred us to see a surgeon. The surgeon, without a lot of words and even less tact, held up the x-ray and pointed to a spot that was hard to make out, and he said, so we're going to cut that part of your pancreas off right there. Melinda was stunned. And she said, wait, you're going to cut out half my pancreas? And the surgeon said, most likely your spleen too. Melinda was in shock. And then the surgeon non-diplomatically said, Ma'am, you are in a surgeon's office. What did you think was going to happen? (laughs) Mary must have been in shock when Simeon uttered these sobering words about her special firstborn baby. But it's like he's saying, Mary, you did give birth to the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. How did you think he was going to do that? Of course he will be rejected and suffer and die. Mary, what did you think was going to happen? In Matthew's account of Jesus' life, he records Jesus saying, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace but a sword. Now, Jesus quickly goes on to show he does not mean he comes to incite violence. There are plenty of political and military leaders, both past and present, who would do that on their own. He means rather his call to allegiance brings conflict. Conflict both among people and within people. Let's look at both these conflicts. First, Jesus causes conflict among people. The first part of Simeon's prophecy is that Jesus will cause the falling and rising of many people in Israel and be a sign that will be spoken against. In other words, people will be polarized over Jesus. Many will oppose him. Jesus came to have people speak against him. Jesus came to have people be mad at him. Jesus came to be rejected. And we don't have to look very far to see that happening. In Luke chapter 4, just two chapters later, we're told that after his dramatic baptism and his draining wilderness temptation, he returns to his hometown in Nazareth of Galilee. 
He enters the synagogue where he grew up. The people were all gathered. They've known him since he was a little boy. He takes one of the scrolls that the Hebrew Scriptures has carefully copied on it by the scribes, and he turns to these words in Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads them out loud. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scrolls. Luke says all eyes are intently fixed on him. They could feel a palpable tension in the room like something big is about to happen. And then Jesus sets down because that's what rabbis did when they taught. And then Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you know what Jesus is really saying? He was declaring that he was the long-awaited arrival of good news to the poor and freedom for prisoners and healing for the hurting and opportunities for the oppressed. In other words, he was claiming for the ministry of the Messiah has finally arrived on the planet and he is it. But that's not all Jesus said. Jesus then goes on to say something even more radical and revolutionary. He says, not only is his messianic ministry for Israel, but it is for all people, even those outside Judaism, even for Gentiles. And when his hometown crowd hears this, they become furious and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who does this guy think he is? Isn't this Joseph the carpenter's boy? Isn't this Mary's son? Haven't we known him since he was a child? And the people in that little synagogue were so outraged at what Jesus said, we're told they rise up and drive him to the outskirts of town where they were intending to throw him over a cliff and kill him. This is his first sermon. Sometimes I've come home after preaching somewhere out of town. And Melinda will ask me, how to go, honey? Hardly ever have I said, you know those crazy people tried to kill me? (laughs) Sometimes it goes pretty good. Sometimes not so hot, but hardly ever does anybody get homicidal on me when I preach. But with Jesus, first sermon, out of the gate, people are going to throw him over a cliff. His response is remarkable. He, he doesn't apologize for what he says. He doesn't say, well, that didn't go over like I thought it would. Maybe I should change my messaging a little bit. Maybe I should soften the God is for Gentiles too part. Now, he's standing on the edge of a cliff, having been pushed there by the residents of his own hometown. And then something happens. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He doesn't say a word. He just walks straight at him. Passed right through them, went on, went on his way. See, Jesus was a teacher, but somehow not just a teacher. He was claiming to have announced something or discovered something or inaugurated something in a way that the teachers of his time or our time or any time never did. From his first sermon that nearly got him killed to his final message when he was being nailed, he spoke about God and his kingdom in ways that astonished and amazed and infuriated. And when we follow him to bring good news to all people, we will encounter our own experiences of rejection too. My dad told me a story shortly before he died I had not heard him tell before. My dad worked at the local grain mill in my little hometown, Germantown. He worked there for 38 years. All of the employees were white except for one, Johnny Lang, who was black. 
One day, the boss of the mill decided to take all the employees to see the Cincinnati Reds play at the old Crosley Field in Cincinnati. This took place sometime in the late 1960s. In those days, you could bring your own lunch into the ballpark and eat at some picnic tables in the outfield. And that's what my dad and his co-workers planned to do, but when the mill employees tried to go in, a man at the gate said, you fellows can come in and eat, but he, pointing at Johnny Lang, has to eat in the parking lot. I, honestly, my heart was a little in my throat when my dad told me the story. And I nervously asked, so what did you do, Dad? And he said, I ate in the parking lot with Johnny. My dad was no civil rights activist, far from it. He was deeply influenced by the racial attitudes of his time and his environment. But there comes a moment for all of us, especially when we claim to be followers of Jesus, when we will have to declare, I'll eat in the parking lot to support the dignity of a fellow image bearer of God. I will forego a personal perk that comes at the price of your pain. I would rather be in community with you than to be in comfort without you. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. And make no mistake about it, friend, if you identify with Jesus, there won't be room for you in a lot of inns. But old Simeon didn't leave it there. He says, to Mary, this child will be spoken against. And if that wasn't bleak enough, he adds, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And it certainly did. As she stood near the cross and watched her firstborn son be abused and humiliated and mocked and finally died before her horrified eyes. She pondered for years the testimonies that her son was the Christ, the Messiah. However, like everyone else around him, she had no expectation of an early, gruesome death and then a resurrection. It must have seemed to her, as it did to all of Jesus' disciples, that the cross was the bloody, incomprehensible end to all their hopes and dreams. But even before that, Jesus' ministry created confusion for Mary. Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus' mother and brothers found his messianic claims to be literally madness to the point that they went to bring him home by force, kind of like an ancient version of Baker acting him. They really thought he was out of his mind. And according to Mark 3, 21, it says they came to take custody of him. When they arrived where he was ministering, they asked someone to interrupt his teaching by saying, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now, let me just say, if someone were to come up on stage right now and whisper to me, your mother and brother are outside looking for you, I'd probably say, folks, apparently I have some family that traveled a great distance to see me, and it appears to be urgent, so I'm going to have to cut it short today. Or at least, at the very least, I would tag Pastor Dustin in and say, finish it up, D.A., But when Mary and the rest of his family told him to stop preaching to come meet with him, look at what Jesus said. Who are my mother and my brothers? (laughs) And you could think at one level, oh my gosh, he's really lost it. He doesn't even know who he is. (laughs) He is crazy. Then looking around at the crowded room, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does, does God's will is my mother, is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was not rattled by his family's misguided request, but instead resolutely affirmed his mission 
that through him, God's forming a new family, a family that would not be based on their biological blood, but on his sacrificial blood, a family that's not formed by earthly processes, but by heavenly promises, a family that's not based on being born, but one that's based on being born again. Tim Keller writes, there are a few persons presented to us in the New Testament who are more admirable and attractive than Mary, yet here... We see even Mary didn't get it completely right. She was seriously mistaken in what her son was about, what needed to be done, and what her response should be. She tried to stop him, to obstruct the ministry that would mean salvation for the world. This was a major mistake on the part of Mary and her other sons. And Jesus' stinging rebuke must have cut her deep like a sword piercing her soul. And yet one more time. We see Mary standing before us as a representative of everybody who loves Jesus. Listen to me. If you love Jesus and you have him in your life, a sword will pass through your heart as well. There will be inner conflict, sometimes confusion, sometimes great pain. You will get things wrong. You may fight with him, and you most certainly will fight with yourself because Jesus causes conflict within people, even those who love him. The words of Simeon and of Jesus is that Christ followers should expect and be ready for conflict, both from within and from without. We should prepare ourselves for trouble, for heartaches, for disappointments, for sorrow, and for losses. We should expect conflict as a way to get peace. And we say that because that's what we see in Jesus, who brought peace through the agony of the cross. In Genesis 3, the writer describes how God exiled humanity from his presence in the garden and access to the tree of life. And when he did that, we're told that a flaming sword was put in place to guard the way back to eternal life. That's another way of saying the wages of sin is death. The entirety of the Old Testament bears witness to this because every time sin is atoned for in the tabernacle or the temple, a substitutionary sacrifice goes under the knife and dies. What was Jesus doing then when he went to the cross? He was paying the penalty for our sin. He was going under the sword for us, the prophet Isaiah said. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. And when he faced his final moment and the full, full fury of the sword was descending down on him, he was utterly alone and forsaken even by the Father. But don't you see what this means, friends? Listen, because he was spoken against, you can be spoken for. Because he was rejected, you can be accepted. Because there was no room for him, you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me tell you, as much as I love Christmas, there is no salvation in Jesus' birth. There's not. As much as I'm inspired by Jesus' masterful teaching, there's no redemption in just his words. As much as I admire the way Jesus lived an authentically sinless life, there's no deliverance from his example. The only way we can know hope and joy and peace is because Jesus came to be rejected so you and I could be accepted. He came to be spoken against so you and I could be spoken for. Because he was forsaken, you and I will never be forsaken. He came to suffer. He came to die for the remission of sins and was raised to life for the renewal of humanity. And when you have that hope, when you have that assurance, let me just say, even though Christmas may feel blue, you can know he is for you. And he's with you. 
and he is in you. And that is the real gift of Christmas. Have you received that? Have you received that, Lake County? Anyone out there, you received that gift online? You can do it right now if you haven't. Would you bow your heads? So, Father, right now, we just open our hearts to you. And for any who, as just the Christmas song says, let every heart prepare him room. And so right now, Father, we, we just open our hearts to you. You were rejected so we could be accepted. You were spoken against so we could be spoken for. Because there was no room for you, we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we say thank you for that. And we receive that. And anyone right now who's never received that gift, would you just call on the name of Jesus? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on the name of Jesus right now. Jesus, the gift of Christmas, the real gift, the gift of life. I receive that. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, we all prayed and said, If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.